0: Uh, we're in the Gospel of John, if you have your scriptures with you, or tablet, or whatever you're using, and we will begin in verse 35 in a second, and we'll work our way to the end of the chapter. Jesus' ministry is beginning now, and uh, it is going to be a, a fun ride as we begin piecing the Gospels together, and Children's Church, you can get on out. They're back there. So if you're going to Children's Church, you can go um, and have fun, right? Okay, so we're in the Gospel of John chapter 1, and uh, we're going to be walking through this morning. We're going to see how this actually pieces together with uh, the other Gospels as well. But uh, to kind of get our minds prepared for what is happening and what our focus is on this morning, uh, we're looking at uh, God's action's call for a godly reaction. Um, In 1686, Sir Isaac Newton developed his three laws of motion. And of these three laws, probably the third one is the most... Well known, it's easiest to remember. For every action in nature, there's an opposite and equal reaction. And uh, I have to admit, I'm not a science person. Um, I did not get into physics. Science is probably my worst subject in school. Uh, It's not that I don't find science interesting. I just could not get my head around it. So if you're a science person, you probably understand that law better than I did. But I could understand it to a point that when something hits another object, it applies force to it, causing a reaction to that object. That's my simplified definition of it. And uh, that, that law came to mind uh, as I was studying this week and looking at the passage of Scripture and what was taking place in our passage this morning. And I thought, what if we take that law and we apply it to our relationship with God? Because in our passage, we're going to see God's actions in the lives of individuals caused a reaction, and it does the same for our own. We're going to begin in verse 35, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter as Jesus is encountering and He's calling His first disciples. And so our question for this morning is, what do you get when you get an excited preacher, a relational fisherman, a critical thinker, the rock, a pessimist, and a racist, and they all find a stairway to heaven? That's what our passage deals with this morning. Uh, Let's begin in verse 35, and then we'll walk through it together. So the next day, again John, and this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, which means it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He was first his, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Verse 43, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to, said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and came to him. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray before we get into this. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you, Lord, you have allowed us come into your presence once again by your grace to have access to your love and your mercy, to have access to your wisdom, and pray your Spirit would. Speak to us all in this moment. You know exactly where we are with you. You know our struggles and our rejoicings. And Father, we come before you as your children or those seeking who you are to be changed and transformed by you. Lord, I pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in everyone's life, including my own, that your spirit would open the word, that we may see it, we may understand it, and we may apply it. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Forgive us if we failed you in any way, and we ask you just to be our shepherd and guide and lead us through your word, and pray us all in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So right off the bat, there's some things we need to do, uh, some background work with this particular passage. Uh, It begins in verse 35, and it creates an issue that we have to deal with. Many of us are probably familiar with Jesus' calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John As the other four Gospels let us know that Jesus found them on the Sea of Galilee as they were fishing, and he called them by saying, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now John's recording of meeting three of these four individuals is entirely different than what Matthew, Mark, and Luke record, and so we've got to reconcile this because John never mentions Jesus calling fishermen from their fishing duties to come and join him. John never even mentions that any of these individuals are fishermen. Instead, what John does is he points at two of the individuals were initially John the Baptist's disciples, and they were with John on on the day that he proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God, and then they began to follow Him because John pointed to them. Our aim, though, in this series is to take all of the Gospels and to get this beautiful image of the story of Jesus, but this particular passage kind of makes our picture a little blurry. So we've got to understand what is going on and where does this fall. Well, first you should notice as we've read through this, nowhere in our passage except with Philip does Jesus give the invitation to come and follow me. The invitation he gives to John's first two disciples is come and see where he is staying. And we'll talk about that here in a second. The, the conversation with Peter is a simply a changing of name or giving him a, a, a new identity. The only invitation is to Philip in verse 43, which Jesus says, follow me. So how do we reconcile this? Well, to get understanding the calling of Peter, James, John, and Andrew and the other Gospels, the initial encounter here with Jesus is not to become his disciples in this moment, but to simply know more about the man to which John had been proclaiming and preaching about. They wanted to spend time with Jesus. They wanted to know who is this person to which our teacher has been pointing to as the Lamb of God. Andrew, which we know by name because John brings him out, is the brother of Simon Peter's brother, or Simon Peter. The other disciple of John is believed to be John the Apostle. Both of these individuals show a sign of respect to Jesus by calling him Rabbi, which John, the writer of this gospel, Lets us know means teacher. But Jesus has not extended the invitation for them to be his followers or his disciples in this passage, except with Philip. The calling of Peter, James and John, which most of us are more familiar with from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke comes at the Sea of Galilee, which, if you caught it, in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, which is where He gave the call for them. That's also where He finds Philip. This means after Andrew, John, and Peter had an encounter with Jesus, the next day they most likely went back to their regular living as fishermen and not back to John the Baptist, and that's when Jesus found them at the Sea of Galilee and then gave them the invitation to be His disciples. The only issue we really have is we don't know whether Jesus called the four fishermen first or He called Philip first, but we do know they've become His disciples by the time we get to chapter 2 as Jesus goes to Cana in Galilee and His disciples went with Him in verse 2 of chapter 2. So we really don't have any reconciliation, it's just a matter of where's the timing of this event. This, what is this passage, though, telling us concerning Jesus and God's action? Well, John gives a time step in verse 35 the next day. This is connecting to what happened in verse 29 through 34, to which John the Baptist is recalling the baptism of Jesus, and he's preaching about that message. We know through Scripture that John the Baptist had more disciples than just these two as they're going to come to Jesus at some point in time in his ministry and speak about John's death and also ask questions that John had concerning Jesus. What we don't know, if there were other disciples with John the Baptist at this particular moment, because Scripture doesn't seem concerned with that. It seems concerned with drawing out these two who heard John say the Lamb of God, and they followed Jesus. We also know, because John brings it out, Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. Again, it's widely speculated and believed that the Apostle John is the second disciple, and the reason it's believed that is because throughout the Gospel of John, which he wrote, He continually omits his own name, frequently calling himself the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't even give himself a name except in the roll call. Well, on this particular day when Jesus shows up to the Jordan River and John the Baptist proclaims his identity, the two disciples leave him and begin to follow John. And it makes sense. If we were in their shoes and we've been hearing John proclaim about one greater than I am who's saying I'm unworthy to untie, he is the Lamb of God, he has been spoken of by the prophets, and then we see him, I think our initial response is, well, I kind of want to spend time with him instead of you, John. But we tend to get upset when this happens in life. I know as a preacher, when I hear of a church, of a family or individuals going to another church family, I tend to take it personal, and sometimes as a church family we can take it personal. But you notice John doesn't take it personal. You want to know why? Because John knew it was not about him. It was about Jesus. He kept pointing to Jesus, and so he was not surprised when his own disciples decide to follow Jesus. We read later in the Gospel of John, John's mentality was this. He, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. John knew it wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. John knew Jesus was the real thing. He was far greater than anything he would ever become, and so the natural reaction of his disciples should be to want to be with Jesus. But it's also interesting, in the Gospel of John, the very first recorded words of Jesus in this Gospel is a question. And it's a very important question. It comes out of verse 38. As they're following Jesus, Jesus stops, he looks at them, and he says, what are you seeking? Jesus' first recorded words in the gospel, what are you seeking? Other translations say, what are you looking for? One is a little more blunt, what do you want? (laughs) Jesus is bringing intention into this interaction. He wants to know what these two individuals' intentions are and it's a great question that we all have to ask in our own life. What do we want in life? What do we hope to accomplish? What do we want from our relationship with God? It reveals in our passage the first action of God is that God is intentional. Our God is not coincidental, our God is not a God who allows things to happen by chance. There's no such thing as karma. When it comes to God, there are no accidents. Now, I'm a Bob Ross fan, but God does not reign supreme through happy little accidents. Our God is intentional, which means God intentionally pursued after us and is pursuing after us in this moment out of His love. He is intentional for us. He revealed us fully in His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and rose again that we could be forgiven and be given eternal life. But we have to ask, what do we want with God? What do we want with Jesus? Many of us probably answer that question, well, I want to be saved and I want to go to heaven. And that's a good answer. There's nothing wrong with it. That's, in fact, why Jesus came, so we could be saved and forgiven and be given eternal life. But what do we want with Jesus today? What are we hoping to accomplish in our relationship with God in this moment? What were your expectations as you drove to church and what was going to happen in your relationship with God before you would go back home? Did we come with any expectation, with any intention that this was going to be something different? It was going to be something meaningful. See, God's intention reveals our reaction. God is intentional and we are to be intentional. It's found throughout Scripture when God intentionally called Abraham. Abraham had to be intentional to live under God's calling and His relationship. When God intentionally called the nation of Israel out of slavery and delivered His law to them, they had to live intentionally under His covenantal relationship. To be intentional is to do something with purpose. It is to be deliberate. And if we don't live with intention in our relationship with God, then we won't live with expectation of God to do anything. We'll simply punch in and we'll punch out and nothing has changed. And Jesus asks this question, what are you seeking? What do you in fact want? You notice how the disciples responded? With a question. Where are you staying? That was their intention. They wanted to spend time with Jesus. They wanted to know who this person was that their former teacher had spoken so highly of. They were telling Jesus, where are you going? Because wherever you are going, we would like to come and be with you. God's intention for us throughout Scripture is to be in a relationship with Him. These two disciples revealed to Jesus that their intention was to know God more through Jesus. And the beautiful thing for us today is we can have the same interaction with Jesus Christ just like these two disciples had. Jesus is the living word which became flesh. So every time we open His word, we get to be intentional about sitting down with Jesus and having a conversation with Him. Hearing Him speak over our life and allowing us to speak with Him through prayer. Jesus invites them to come and stay where he is going to stay. That word stay in verse 38 and 39 could also be wrote, read as abide. The word abide means to, to uh, endure sometimes in Scripture. It means to rest peacefully, but at the same time to be an active participant. It means to remain. And Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, whoever rests, In me, whoever stays in me, and I am him, he is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. See, we are to be intentional about abiding, staying, remaining, and resting in Jesus, which takes an active endurance of faith on our part. It's not easy because we are so distracted. How many would admit our minds have already gone somewhere else other than God's Word as we've started? Yeah. So it's an active participation to abide in Christ. God, I'm going to stay in this moment with you. I'm going to abide here. I'm going to rest here. And I'm going to focus here. Well, after this gathering, we don't know what they talked about. You know, Scripture doesn't reveal that. No other gospel even talks about this interaction that happened. And some reason, we're not we're, we don't need to know what happened. But we do know after this conversation that they had, and they most likely stayed to the night. When it says the 10th hour, it means about 4 o'clock in the evening, and most travelers didn't travel at night. And so they they probably stayed all night talking and maybe eating together and laughing together and just figuring out who Jesus is. Well, after the conversation, Andrew has come to the conclusion that whatever was talked about, it was not for him to keep to himself. So he immediately goes and finds his brother Peter and proclaims to him, we have found the Messiah. To which John puts in there, the word Messiah means Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the one spoken of by the prophets of old. He is the fulfillment of what we've been expecting. But notice Andrew doesn't just go to his brother Peter. And we're probably more familiar with Peter. Because Peter's a little more outspoken. He just doesn't go and say, we have found the Messiah. He grabs Peter by the hand and says, come and see. I want you to experience him as well. He was intentional about me meeting him, and I want to be intentional about me taking you to Jesus. Andrew takes the intentional approach of being relational. He's bringing those whom he loves to Jesus so they can experience the Jesus that he knows. If you read through the Gospels, all four of them, Andrew is mentioned only a few times. But every time he is mentioned, he is mentioned as being a relational disciple, bringing people to Jesus to meet them. He doesn't just preach a message, he doesn't just rattle off what he's learned. He says, Hey, why don't you come and experience this for yourself? And Peter comes. Andrew was intentional because Jesus was intentional. Jumping back to verse 35 is going to help us see the next action of God in our reaction. It says, Jesus was stand, or, the next day John was standing with two disciples, and he looked, and Jesus walked by. And we've got to understand, Jesus was not just out for a casual stroll on this day. Jesus didn't wake up and be like, you know, today would be a good day for a hike down by the river. Jesus was being intentional. He knew where John was. He knew what John was preaching. He knew who was with John on that day. And he knew how they would respond when John pointed him out. It is, in fact, Jesus who found them. And if you look verses 41 through verse 45, five times the word found is mentioned. It means to actively look for. It would appear the first disciples were pointed to Jesus. And in fact, Jesus who found them, just like Jesus found Philip in verse 43, and Jesus found Nathaniel in verse 48. He said that I saw you. It reveals an action of God that is to reveal a reaction on our part. Our God pursues us. And so we are to be pursuers of God. The text revealed our pursuit of God can come with a lack of understanding. It can even come with a place of disbelief, and no matter where we start, we are to be in pursuit of the God who is always pursuing us. John points out Jesus left the Jordan River in verse 43 and he begins heading to Galilee. He'd be at the Sea of Galilee again, where he gives the invitation for the Ford of Fishermen to become his disciples. That happened at Capernaum. Now, Peter, Andrew, And John had already had this interaction with Jesus. And now Philip at Bethsaida, which was also by the Sea of Galilee, about five miles to the east of Capernaum, has this this calling to follow Jesus. It's very possible that Philip and the four fishermen were called on the same day. Or it could have happened, after Jesus called Philip, he began making his way to the wedding at Cana because he would have had to have gone through Capernaum where he called the four fishermen. But again, We don't need to wrestle this out. Philip gets the invitation, and it implies that he immediately responds. Being from Bethsaida, he would also have been from a fishing community. But if we look in Scripture, we find Philip in different spots, particularly at the feeding of the 5,000. Philip is a pessimist. I like to say realist, but he's a pessimist. He he couldn't fathom how they were going to take care of 5,000 people His name is derived from the Greek, which means that makes sense because later in the Gospel of John, some Greeks are going to come to Philip and ask Philip to introduce them to Jesus, to which Philip finds Andrew because Andrew's more personal, he's more relational. But Philip's name being Greek means one or two things he's either a Greco Jew which means one of his parents was Greek and one of his parents was Jewish, and that's taboo in the Jewish society. They looked at those as half-breeds. That's why they had such disdain to the Samaritans. Or his parents were both Jewish, but they were so fascinated with the Hellenistic culture of the Roman world, they decided to name their child after that culture, which was also taboo within the society. Yet we find Jesus, God in the flesh, giving this invitation to Philip to follow me, and it's briefer than all the other interactions as Philip immediately follows Jesus and has this understanding there's something about him which I've never encountered before. Philip then goes and finds who? Nathaniel. Now, we, there's no implication that they're brothers. They're probably some sort of close relationship. If you're looking at the other Gospels, Nathaniel is sometimes given the name Bartholomew. It was not common in this, uncommon in society for individuals to have two names. For example, the Apostle Paul was the Pharisee Saul. That wasn't a name change, that was an alias. It was a different identification. But see, when we realize that our God, the God we worship, is pursuing after us, and then we react by pursuing after God, the natural reaction is then we allow God to use us to pursue after others. And this is what Philip does with Nathanael. He goes and proclaims in verse 45, We have found him of whom Moses and the law, also the prophets, wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's interesting that Philip doesn't say, We have found the Christ. We have found the Messiah. We have found the Lamb of God. We have found the Son of God. We have found the Son of Man. Instead, he says, We have found the one who has fulfilled the law, or is the fulfiller of the law, and he fulfilled the prophets. Philip's description of Jesus then helps us understand the prejudice of Nathanael. In using these terms to define Jesus, Philip is speaking a language to which his buddy Nathanael would have understood, which lets us know a little bit about Nathanael. Nathanael must have been an avid student of God's Word or what we call the Old Testament. When Philip describes Jesus in these terms, He's using a description from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, and from the prophetic books of the Old Testament. So Nathanael's response, can anything good come out of Nazareth, actually contains two meanings. First, Scripture reveals Nathanael was from Cana in Galilee. Nazareth is about 10 miles in Galilee from Cana. So we could have some village rivalry going on, something like Stratford and Fairgrove, By the way, this week, if you're from Stratford, don't wear purple. That's just like an underwritten rule. But that could be what's going on. Oh, Nazareth. Because anybody from Nazareth was insignificant. But Nathanael also understood the prophecy. See, Philip said he was Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael, if he is an avid student of the Word of God, which he must have been the way Nathanael describes Jesus or Philip describes Jesus, then Nathanael would have known that the Messiah, the Christ, the fulfiller of God's law, the fulfiller of the prophets, could not come from Nazareth because there is no prophecy that specifically says he comes from Nazareth. Philip understood that the Messiah had to come from the line of David, which means Bethlehem. But here's the thing. He doesn't have all the information. Nathanael doesn't have all the information. He doesn't know Jesus' backstory. He doesn't know that Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem and that his parents fled to Egypt, then came back to settle in Nazareth, which was their hometown. And so he is struggling to understand what Philip is saying about this individual because he does not match what he knows has to be true. Nathaniel is probably dealing with some prejudice, but he's also stating in in his remark to Philip that he knows Scripture. And the Messiah does not come from Nazareth. That's not what God's word says. But you notice how Philip responds to Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, What good can come from Nazareth? Philip does not enter into a debate. He does not try to prove his point of view. He doesn't try to rationalize with Nathaniel. He doesn't try to tell Nathaniel, listen, buddy, you're way off. He doesn't even question or belittle Nathaniel's views. Instead, Philip looks at his friend who just made this really crude comment and says, come and see. Come and experience him for yourself, come and be with him. He's looking at his friend and says, well, Nathaniel, I don't know anything about all that. But why don't you come and experience Jesus Jesus personally and then come to your conclusion? And that's what we're doing when we're inviting people to come to church. We're inviting people to enter into Bible studies. It's not to push our views or our convictions upon them. We are giving them a personal invitation to come and experience the Messiah. Even if they're reluctant, even if they have no openness to it about, about Jesus Christ or God's word or church, we just want them to just come and experience it. Come to your own conclusion after you've been in the presence of God. Philip understood that anything he said to his friend Nathaniel was powerless compared to being in the presence of Jesus. His words had no power to change his position. And we don't have to rationalize Jesus to this world. We don't even have to defend Jesus to the world. But we are called to personally invite people to experience Jesus. Paul understood it. He wrote the majority of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Nathaniel was obviously a seeker. He was searching for something. To be under a fig tree in this day and age was the common place within the Jewish society to meditate over God's Word and to pray. So Philip knew where to find Nathanael. Probably had some sort of close relationship. But honestly, it was Jesus who found Nathaniel through Philip, just as Jesus wants to find our co-workers and our friends and those we love through us. Jesus simply used Philip to bring this prejudiced, doubting, close-minded individual to the presence of Jesus. And you can just imagine Nathanael's mindset as he's following his friend Philip to the apparent Messiah. Philip, you should know better than this. This is ridiculous. Such a waste of time. But when he arrives, when Nathanael gets in the presence of Jesus, he experiences something he did not expect. Verse 47, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. That's a pretty nice compliment. I'd like to have Jesus say that about me. What is he saying? He's saying, Nathanael is of pure bloodline. He's a pure Jew. And his actions are always with complete integrity. It seems like a weird compliment to give to someone who is openly reluctant to give the time of day to a Nazarene. But Nathanael is coming from a place of knowing Scripture and what Scripture said about the Christ at this point, Nathanael didn't have Jesus' backstory of how he perfectly fulfilled the prophecies. You notice Nathanael's response? Seems kind of prideful to me. Verse 48, how do you know me? <laughs> That's a nice thing to say, but how do you know me? And in Jesus' response, he reveals to Philip and Nathanael his authenticity and his equality with God when he tells Nathanael how he saw him under the fig tree. Jesus' statement of seeing Nathaniel and how he found him and not Philip finding him was a statement of his omniscience or his all-knowing character, which is only a character of God. And it's at this revelation of God residing in this Nazarene, Jesus, Nathaniel openly confesses he has now the understanding that Philip invited him to understand. He says, you are the Son of God, verse 49. That phrase means you are the same nature of God. You are the king of Israel. That phrase means that he understood Jesus fulfilled all of the covenants and prophecies concerning him. So the final action we see of God in our reaction is God transforms us and we are to be continually transformed. That's what happened to Nathaniel. He was transformed by his experience with God and then Jesus was going to invite him into a relationship with him to be continually transformed. At the point of salvation, we are transformed. We move from sinner to saint, from enemy of God to child of God. We were once an individual who was completely cut off from God. But now at our salvation, we have been given complete access to God. This is the transformation of salvation. But salvation is to continue in a transforming process. The Bible refers to this as sanctification Sanctification means the continuing work of God in a believer's life to set them apart from the world. This is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Paul uses the term brothers because he's writing and speaking to believers. They're already a part of the family of God. They've already been transformed at salvation. They have their identity found in Jesus Christ. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and if you're reading Romans, mercies of God refers to everything that Paul's already spoken about in Romans chapter 1 through 11. So he's, he's been speaking about God's mercies. And now he's saying, now that you see and hear and know the mercies of God, brothers, believers, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's Paul's way of saying to take up your cross and die to yourself, follow Jesus, die to the sinful nature. Be a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he goes on. So how do I do this? Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word renewal is a constant action on the part of believers. It doesn't just happen today, but it's happened this afternoon. It happens tomorrow and the next day and the next day. By the renewal of your mind, it's continuing to be renewed, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so God transforms us at salvation, and though we may have a timestamp for our salvation, like I was saved when I was five or six, or I was saved when I was an adult, or I was saved, whatever. We may have that timestamp. but by, the Bible reveals that salvation is an ongoing process because salvation is about a relationship with God. Paul would word it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This was the invitation Jesus was giving to Philip and Nathanael. Not to just know Jesus as their salvation, but to be transformed by that knowledge and become something that they weren't before they met Jesus. It's the same invitation we're going to see next week on the Sea of Galilee. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men meaning they were going to begin this relationship, what we call salvation, with Jesus, and then Jesus was going to make them into something they weren't when He found Him. This is our salvation story. Yes, I was saved at this period of life, but my salvation story is ongoing because God is continually to work in me the work He can only do, and I am working out my salvation with fear and trembling before God. So salvation is instant, and salvation is ongoing. It's not to prove ourselves to God, but to be intentional in our pursuit of God. And so that takes us to our question, are we being intentional about pursuing after God so we might be transformed more into the likeness of Christ? That's salvation. It is a continuous act. And You may be here this morning and have yet to experience the gift of salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ. And I pray that this next verse will open your mind. So if you've blocked everything else out, then tune me back in just for a few more minutes. In verse 51, Jesus says something kind of strange to Philip and Nathaniel. The, the, The you, truly, truly, I say to you, that you there is actually plural. He's not just speaking to Philip in this moment, or Nathaniel in this moment. He's speaking to both of them. But Jesus said, He said to him, Truly, truly, which could be read, Amen, amen, or this is verily true, or this is the truth. I say to you, Philip and Nathaniel, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And when we read that verse, we have to keep in mind, Philip is competent with the Old Testament and so is Nathaniel. That's why Philip describes Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets. That's why Nathaniel was able to understand what Philip was trying to tell him. So they understood the Old Testament. And so when Jesus takes this, he's taking from the Old Testament, which they've been familiar with. It comes from a story in Genesis when Jacob fell asleep on a rock after fleeing from his brother Esau because he stole his birthright. And as Jacob is falling asleep on this rock, he finally sleeps. He sees this vision. And the vision is of a ladder, and angels are ascending and descending from heaven down to earth, and the Lord is above all of it. Just a simple illustration that God is over all things there in Genesis. And this is what Jacob sees. He wakes up and says, surely this is the place of God. He renames the place Bethel. Well, Jesus, because He is the Word and knows there, and He was at that moment with Jacob, is taking from that, and He's saying it, that you will see heaven open like Jacob did, and the angels of God ascending and descending, but not on a ladder, but on whom? The Son of Man, the Son of God. He's making two statements to which Nathaniel and Philip are being transformed in their understanding of who He is. He's saying, "I am God in the flesh. I am God with you. I'm over you still, but I am in your presence and you are in my presence. And Jesus omits the latter portion in the statement because Jesus is now the ladder for individuals to get to heaven. He is the stairway to heaven. This is why Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. He can only say this because He is the only means to God. He is the only means to which you can be forgiven, saved, and be given eternal life. Jesus is the ladder you need. Without Him, you're lost and there's no way to God. Salvation is in Christ alone. And if you've yet to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the Bible reveals because God loves you and pursues after you, He wants you to know that you are not saved, and you're heading for eternal judgment in hell. But here's the beauty of the gospel. You're here today because God is pursuing after you. You might think you just showed up haphazardly to church, or someone may have drugged you to church, but the reality is God used that individual to bring you to Him because He's been pursuing after you in His love. He is intentional to find you and to save you. And now he brings you to this moment where he has acted and he calls for a reaction on your part. To understand that you are a sinner. You do things you shouldn't do. You are cut off from the presence of God and the promise of eternal life. But God took your sin, your punishment, upon himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to die on a cross because he lived a perfect life. They placed him in a tomb and he rose three days later. And the Bible says, when I believe that in my heart, that God did that for me, God pursued after me, God was intentional to save me, to transform me, then I need to confess it with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior. If you have never done that before, then I want to tell you this in love. You are lost and God is inviting you to transform in this moment to be saved and found give you the gift of salvation we're going to sing a song of invitation and i'm going to invite you to come down and say pastor mike i may not understand everything you don't have to say these exact words but just come down and say i want to be saved it's not about you understanding everything or having it all figured out it's about what god has done for you he's brought you here because he loves you and he wants you to know him as your lord and savior maybe you're here this morning and you've already made that commitment But you all, maybe sometimes we get into the rhythm and routine of life and we forget that we need to be intentional about pursuing after God in our relationship with Him. Maybe you just need to stay where you are. Maybe you need to come and kneel before the Father and apologize to Him and make the commitment, I'm going to be intentional about pursuing after you and being transformed by you. We're going to be led in a song during this time. If you need to come down and pray, I invite you to come. But let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for saving us. Thank You for revealing Yourself to us. No, I thank You for the work You're doing at, at Your church. I thank You for the work You're doing in people's lives in this moment. Father, I pray if there are individuals, just an individual here this morning who does not know He's your Lord and Savior. Father, Your Spirit would give them the courage, and the conviction to not be able to stay where they are. Father, I pray for myself, Lord. I know there's times that I'm not intentional about about you. I'm not pursuing after you. I'm not allowing you to transform me. Forgive me where I have you. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, that we would be a church of intention. People would hear of Harvest too. This it's a church is actively pursuing after God and actively proclaiming. So do a good work in us in this time. I ask that your will and your kingdom be done. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.